RC Top 3, a weekly podcast of the top three stories from Regnum Christi. A place just for you and him. Dear friends in Christ, On this day in 1529, St. Thomas More was appointed Lord Chancellor of England. He resigned less than three years later and was executed for treason in 1535 under the same monarch, King Henry VIII, who had appointed him Chancellor after admiring him for twelve years. Thomas's crime? Disagreeing with the king's insistence on certain things he knew were not the Catholic faith. When King Henry wanted Thomas to sign a letter to the Pope requesting an annulment from Henry's wife, Catherine, Thomas refused. In the years that followed, he could tell that Henry was positioning court and clergy to break with Rome, a separated ecclesial community now known as the Anglicans, with the exception of some Anglican ordinariates in full communion with Rome, and Episcopalians. And Moore knew he could not support that, so he resigned, citing poor health. Henry was not convinced. In 1533, with the king now considered in England as supreme authority of the church and state, Moore did not attend the marriage coronation of Anne Boleyn, the woman for whom Henry had sought an annulment from Catherine. Thomas sent a letter of congratulations instead. Moore did not openly challenge the king or denounce him in the streets or even in his circle of friends and acquaintances, but his attitude and example were sending a message that Henry did not like. Henry had charges trumped up against Moore, but no evidence was found or could prove the alleged crimes. Moore was a trained and skilled lawyer, aware of his rights, and admired for his moral integrity. So, after a lot of cat and mouse, he was ordered to take an oath on April 13, 1534, that acknowledged Anne's legitimate position as queen, the annulment Henry granted to himself, and the king being the head of the Church of England. Thomas accepted the position on Anne, but refused to acknowledge the other two points, leading to his imprisonment in the Tower of London. In the end, a jury that included Anne's father, brother, and uncle, based on false testimonies, condemned Thomas to death for treason. As Thomas went to the headman's block, he said he was the king's good servant, but God's first. The Catechism teaches that, deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. Its voice, ever calling him to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil, sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. His conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. Number 1776. See also Gaudium et Spes, number 16. St. Thomas More, in every moment, sought to do good, avoid evil, and to love. He heard the Lord's voice loud and clear in his heart and put it into practice, sometimes with his silence. Society today plays a lot of cat and mouse, legally, politically, culturally, and socially, to crowd us into agreeing with things our conscience knows to be wrong, just as Henry VIII wielded his influence and friendship to crowd St. Thomas More. The conscience is a place for you and the Lord alone. Not even the prophets always spoke the Lord's message with words. They often gave witness through their presence, their absence, their actions, and their omissions.
we can do the same, even when it results in character assassination instead of actual assassination. Let's do good, avoid evil, and seek to truly love. May the Lord help you hear and heed what echoes in the depths of your conscience. It's just you and Him. Father Nikola Durpich, L.C. Author, Maximizing the Mass. To know God is to know peace. Carving out time to reflect and pray is an ongoing challenge. Managing the legitimate demands of work, school, and family takes effort, while resisting distractions requires discipline and self-control. But how can one do it all? To address these common human challenges, Regnum Christi NY Tri-State is offering separate opportunities for men and women to schedule some quality time with God. Over the course of seven mini-mornings, Father Eric Nielsen, L.C., and Father Jorge Obregón, L.C., will address the innate longing of the human heart for closeness with God, a pursuit that fosters peace amidst the never-ending demands of daily life. The first session for women was held on Saturday, October 15th, at the Father's House in Rye, New York. Twenty-eight women arrived to pray, listen, meditate, attend Mass, and have the opportunity for reconciliation. The theme of the morning was finding peace through actively and diligently pursuing God's will. Father Eric described peace as an emotion that happens when one understands what we are striving for. Since we are made for God, we are made for peace. Father Eric used the book of Jonah as a vehicle to demonstrate how aligning oneself with God's will is the true path to holiness. Ironically, the book of Jonah begins with the prophet fleeing from God's will. Instead of making his way to Nineveh, where God called him to preach, Jonah runs in the opposite direction by getting on a boat headed to Tarsus. Of course, we all know the rest of the story about how Jonah is tossed off the boat and swallowed by a whale who brings him to his divine destination. Since Jonah's preaching actually resulted in the conversion of Nineveh, we get to enjoy a happy ending where a prophet does God's will and the people repent. Yet, we all recognize that the real happy ending for prophets, preachers, and people in general is when we reach our heavenly home. One way to do this is to embrace the counterintuitive nature of the Beatitudes, a list of attributes that one would not usually write up as goals for the day. Father Eric explained how to use these eight principles as a means to blessedness and, ultimately, peace. Father Eric's homily provided the final component for the morning's theme by highlighting the experience of St. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who, despite extraordinary physical and spiritual trials, found God and found peace. For I am already being poured out like a libation, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8 to For those who are unable to attend, the talk and meditation videos, Peace of Heart, Diligence versus Sloth, and Means to Blessedness, are on our YouTube channel, Regnum Christi NY Tri-State. 
Solemnity of All Saints Dear Pam, It's still Halloween while I write this. I am afraid that my guards are plotting some kind of Halloween bash for me, and it won't be pleasant, and it will leave me in no shape to write to you tomorrow. But it's just as well. Liturgically speaking, all the great solemnities begin after sundown on the day before. You may be interested to know the origin of this celebration. It has a lot to do with the question you posed in your last email. How can I keep being a strong Christian on a campus that's becoming so pagan? No matter what, that task won't be easy. But you will be encouraged in your efforts by hearing about origins of today's feast, and who knows, it may spark some ideas. You haven't been to Rome, but that's where the celebration began, back in 609, under Pope Boniface IV. And it happened in a strange, quite Halloween-like circumstance. One of the older residential areas of the city was located near a huge Roman temple called the Pantheon, built by the emperor architect Hadrian back in the second century. You've probably seen pictures. Well, a couple hundred years before Pope Boniface's time, the Roman Empire had turned Christian, at least for the most part. Little by little, the Romans repudiated their pagan ways, and the city, though beleaguered by barbarians and plagues, began to give off the good odor of Christ, as St. Paul put it. Unfortunately, some bad pagan odors still lingered. One particularly putrid aroma hovered about the Pantheon. As a temple, it had held huge statues of all the gods most revered by the imperial family, thus its name, Pantheon, all the gods. It was abandoned, since Christians were now using their own temples, but was becoming the object of frequent complaints from those who lived in its neighborhood. It seems that frequently, when they would walk by the door of the old temple, strange things would happen. Eerie voices would threaten them. Bricks would fall down menacingly. Ice-cold breezes would accost them, along with many things that were worse than mere breezes. In short, it was clear that the place was haunted by demons. Around the year 609, the complaints reached new heights, and the neighborhood appealed directly to the Pope to do something about it. Raising the massive structure to the ground was too gargantuan a task, so Boniface IV found a creative solution. He decided to exorcise the temple and reconsecrated it as a Christian church, dedicated not to all the gods, but to all the Roman martyrs, and to Mary, the queen of all saints and martyrs. This he did, and soon after, the complaints stopped. It still serves as a church today. The memorial of that consecration was celebrated on May 13th, but it became so popular that a century or so later, Pope Gregory III moved the feast to November 1st, anniversary of his dedicating a chapel to all the saints in the Vatican Basilica, and extended the celebration to the whole church. Thus, All Saints' Day was born. It scattered evil spirits and recalled the witness of all those Christians who faithfully followed Christ through the gates of his passion into the light of glory. So if the neo-paganism on campus gets worse and worse, don't let it get you down. Look for a creative way to baptize it and count on the prayers of the saints to support you. Your loving uncle, Eddie. 
For more resources, visit www.regnumchristi.org or download the Regnum Christi English app today.